bit of a brief review of what we've covered in the previous two weeks. Uh, as you know, uh, the Lord sent two angels out to the city of Sodom. I call this the Lord's mission. You really need to have your notes tonight I've, we made because there's a lot of verses on them you're going to need to look at because there's a lot, of, a lot to cover tonight. Uh, if you have those, that would be really helpful. But I'm calling this the Lord's mission, verses 1 to 29, a mission with three objectives. The first ob objective is to investigate. They had to go to investigate. You remember Genesis 18 said the Lord wanted to see the, if the evil he was hearing about in Sodom was as bad as it sounded. And, of course, he knows that it is. He's going to give them a fair warning, though, and he's going to investigate. So the angels go to investigate. They quickly find out, yes, it's as bad as we thought it was. The, the men of Sodom surround the house of Lot where the angels are in, and they demand that, they, that the Lot brings those two angels out, which look like men, they appear as men. Bring those two men out. We want to have relations with them, homosexual relations. We talked about this the last two weeks. The high, this is really a nitty-gritty chapter, and the angels blind the men to prevent any further aggression. That's the first objective. They investigate. They find out, yeah, it's a bad city, sinful city. Secondly, to rescue, verses 12 to 22, the angels warn the people there, warn Lot, hey, the city's going to be destroyed, but first, they've got to get Lot out of the city and his family out of the city. That's difficult because Lot presents some problems on the way out, but they eventually succeed. The Lord's merciful to Lot, and they get him out. That brings us to tonight, and the third objective of their going to Sodom, the Lord's mission, is to destroy Stephen just read about that in verses 23 to 29. Now, go back to verse 13. Look at the first line. It says, the angels told Lot, we are about to destroy this place. And now that time has come. Time has arrived to do that with the rescue of Lot uh, safe at hand. Lot's out of the city. His family's out of the city. At the present moment, think about this. There are exactly no righteous people in Sodom. Not 50, not 45, not 30, not 20, not 10. There are not, not even one, as Abraham, Abraham had hoped for at least ten. Now there's none at this point. And the way is now clear for the Lord to complete his mission, and that is to literally destroy the city. Look at verse 23. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Now the Sodomites had sinned under the cover, cover of darkness. They waited till nighttime, and when nighttime came, they made their approach to the house of Lot, they openly and brazenly demand uh, relations with these men, and uh, they are sitting together as a group. Everybody's in on this together, and uh, it's not until night when they come out. Now, people, generally speaking, love to sin when? When it's in secret, right? People sin in secret when they're hidden away from the watching eyes of other people uh, by themselves. It could be by himself. It could be a person... Uh, with another person, it could be a person with a select group of people, but together they're going to send, and they like to do this at night, they like to do this in secrecy, and that's how, that's how it is. John, Jesus said in John 3.19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, but people love what? They love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Why do people love darkness? Because their deeds are evil. And when they do their evil deeds, they want it to be dark. They don't want anybody to know. So you can see all these political scandals constantly where people are trying to hide the truth because they don't want people to know about this. Now, the men of Sodom sit in the darkness, but they're going to be exposed in broad daylight. The judgment is going to take place in broad daylight. Now, the sun has risen. It's broad daylight, and judgment will fall, so much so that people from a distance can see 
what has happened to the city of Sodom and the surrounding area. In fact, one person in particular is going to see this. We'll look at that later. Verse 24, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. That language there is reminiscent of something. Does that remind us of anything? It reminds us of the flood. In Genesis 7 and 8, language similar, the Lord rains down uh, rain, liquid rain in that case and destroys the, the planet, destroys the, uh, the earth. This time it's, it's not liquid rain, rather brimstone and fire. Now out of natural curiosity, people when they, they come to this verse, they, they want to turn, you know, they can, the people have this knack of turning something supernatural, that the Bible says is supernatural, into something that is natural. They do that all the time, and often there's this tendency in this verse to find a natural reason as to how the brimstone and fire fell from heaven. So they seek scientific explanations. By the way, let me say this, the Bible and true science, the Bible and factual science, uh, verifiable science, repeatable science, uh, discoverable science, those things, they're not at odds with, with each other. God is the ultimate scientist. And he is the one who established science and the laws of science, sciences of God. So God and, the, and true science are not at odds. I'm not saying that they are. But people give explanations as to, well, how did this brimstone and fire fall from heaven? Well, here's a typical explanation. Think, just listen carefully, only a couple sentences. You'll see something like this. The destruction of Sodom can be explained as an earthquake, a phenomenon to which the Jordan Valley, with its series of rift valleys, would be particularly prone. Lightning would ignite the compressed gases and the petroleum asphalt that escaped through the fissures in the ground. <laughs> and so many people say, well, this is an earthquake, and they explain it like that. There's a long scientific explanation. Some people say, no, it's a volcanic uh, eruption. Now, I'm not eliminating these possibilities. I'm not doing that. But how does Scripture explain it? You know, there is the supernatural aspect in Scripture. God is what? He's supernatural. He's God. He can do anything. He has all powerful, right? There's that aspect. What does it say in verse 24? It simply says, The Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now, if God is who he says he is, all powerful, he can certainly do miracles as he does in the New Testament. He can certainly do supernatural things. He does. And it, this is, there's only one cause the Bible attributes this to, and that is the Lord himself. He did it. He did it. Uh, it's the Lord's doing. There's no other explanation given here other than this is the supernatural act of God. Twice in the same sentence it says, look at verse 24, the cause of the destruction is the Lord himself. Now in English grammar, this is really unacceptable. This is a really bad English grammar, by the way, verse 24. You're not supposed to be redundant, but notice what it says here. It says, the Lord, then the Lord, verse 24, at the end of the sentence, from the Lord. That's to emphasize the fact that the Lord did this. In fact, the verb in verse 24 is in a tense that means to cause. The Lord caused this rain to come down. So however we view this, and I'm not saying it can't be an earthquake or whatever. Maybe the Lord used that kind of thing. But however we view this, we cannot, we must not explain it away as if it was only due to natural causes. It says several times, this is the Lord's doing. He brought it about. Now in verse 13, the two angels say, we are about to destroy this place. In verse 14, the angels say, the Lord will destroy the city. Probably meaning that since the, the angels are on the Lord's side, they're his servants, they're all in on the plan with him, 
but the Lord himself will actually do the destroying with the angels in full support. Now, what does the Lord rain down? Brimstone and fire. Brimstone, imagine, imagine being there on the scene when this happened. Burn, uh, brimstone is sulfur. Many people would translate the phrase fire and brimstone as burning sulfur or sulfurous fire. In fact, one writer said that, that Yahweh hurled blocks of burning sulfur on the cities. Basically, that's what happened. It was a horrific judgment, however he did this. Absolutely horrific. Psalm 11.6 on your notes says, Upon the wicked the Lord will rain snares. <clears throat> Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of the, their cup, the cup of the wicked. That would certainly apply to Sodom. It must have been absolutely frightful to be there and have this rain down. Not everywhere in the world, just in that valley. Verse 25, And he overthrew those cities, and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Verse 25, still emphasizing the fact that it's the Lord who did this, says he overthrew those cities. Again, however we explain it, the Lord did it. It says he overthrew it. The term overthrow there, by the way, is also used in verse 29 twice. You see these terms, like also, you know, sweep away, overthrow, destroy. You see those terms in chapter 18 and 19. Overthrow means to overturn, to turn something upside down, to demolish something. And so this is a total destruction we're talking about here. It wasn't just Sodom. It was all the cities of the valley, including other cities like Gomorrah, a, a city called Adma, a city called Zeboam. And the fifth city that was supposed to be destroyed was spared for the sake of Lot. That is Zoar. And so notice verse 25, all the valley was demolished, all the inhabitants, even the vegetation, what grew on the ground, it says. I can imagine even Lot's herd was wiped out. Now, Deuteronomy 29:23, which is on your notes, is a very interesting verse. It is comparing the destruction of Sodom to what Israel will experience in the future because they're going to be disobedient, and God says, I'm going to judge you just like I did Sodom. It says in that verse, all, the, all its land is brimstone and salt, uh, burning waste, unsown, unproductive, and no grass grows in it, just like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboam, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. Boy, was he angry. Here's a, and here's a comparison here. Genesis 19 shows us exactly what the Lord thinks of people who pursue depravity with all their might. He unleashes his fury on them in an incredible way. Now, when Lot chose to live in this area, remember Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13, when Lot was with Abraham, verse 10, says Lot lifted up his eyes. You know, Abraham says, choose where you want to live. Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw all the valley of the Jordan. That it was what? It was well watered everywhere. Beautiful place. In fact, the verse goes on to say, in fact, it was so beautiful, it was like the Garden of the Lord, the Garden of Eden. That's incredible. Think about this area. People naturally looking at it, you'd want to live there. Who knew what was there, though, until you went there? It was beautiful land, lush land, fertile land. That verse also says that was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, we're talking about before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a beautiful place, the land was. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom, uh, the area was fruitful. Now, after he destroyed Sodom, not fruitful. 2 Peter 2.7, in your notes, 2 Peter 
God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes. Wow. It just goes on and on with this, in, the, in the scripture with, with this explanation of this vast destruction. One commentator, Gordon Wyndham, says the Dead Sea still reeks of sulfurous fumes and asphalt deposits are found. Uh, the, the historian Josephus, and, who died in 100 AD, he lived in the first century, he apparently visited the area, and he, sat, he says of this, of the area in the first century AD, he says this, in fact, vestiges of the divine fire in Sodom and faint traces of five cities are still visible. Still, too, one may see ashes reproduced. Now listen to this. One may see, this is when he visited in the first century, one may see ashes reproduced in the fruits, which from their outward appearance would be thought edible, it's like fruit I can eat, but on being plucked with the hand, dissolve into smoke and ashes. Centuries later, this is what first-hand account from Josephus says. Philo, another guy who died around 40 AD, gives this account. He says, even to this day, there are seen monuments of the unprecedented destruction that fell upon them. In the ruins and ashes and sulfur and smoke and the dusky flame, which still is sent up from the ground as of, as of a fire smoldering beneath. This is unbelievable destruction. Look at verse 26. But his wife, Lot's wife from behind him, looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, not much is said of Lot's wife. We, we, we don't know much about her. Uh, I, I, it never says she was a righteous woman. It never says, says Lot was a righteous man. It never says she was a righteous woman. Even the angels in verse 12, you go back to verse 12, when they're warning Lot, Lot, go tell all your relatives, tell your sons-in-law, any sons you have, any daughters, and whoever else, warn them that judgment is coming. He never says, oh, by the way, warn your wife. <laughs> he never even mentions her at all. Uh, it's almost as if Lot, Lot's wife is a non-factor in this whole story until we get to verse 26. We don't even know her name. She's referred to as Lot's wife. She's a nameless, faceless person in this story. Verse 16, the angel has to grab her forcibly, as he does everybody else, to get them out of Sodom. But that's all it says about her until you get to verse 26. And this is what this, the, the, Lot's wife is known for in all of Scripture. Here's her one shiny moment, her 15 minutes of fame, here it comes, better make it good, in verse 26. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she, she became a pillar of salt. That's it. Now, verse 17, look at verse 17. When they're on their way out, they're escaping. When, they had, when the angels had brought the Lot and his wife and daughters outside of Sodom, one said, escape your life. Let me give you some instructions here on the way out. Escape your life. Kenneth is like you taking a group down somewhere. Let me give you all these instructions. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. Do not look behind you. <laughs> Clear enough? Lot's wife heard that. Look, the word look there means to gaze intently. The Net Bible defines it this way. To, to, defines that word, that word look as an intense gaze, not a passing glance. You're really looking and with intensity at something, the escapees are told, don't look behind you. Don't look behind you. Lot's wife hears this. Verse 26, she does exactly what they say not to do. She looks behind her, same word, by the way, as in verse 17. And uh, she may have even stopped. I imagine she stopped and looked back the way she gazed intently. Now, Lot did hesitate, but he never looks back. Why does she look back? 
Verse 26 doesn't tell us. It doesn't even answer the question. But the fact that she became a pillar of salt tells me something about her. It tells me she is consigned to the same judgment as the men of Sodom. That's what it tells me. I have to conclude, I conclude she's not a righteous woman. She gets the same, receives the same fate as the people of Sodom. In fact, she becomes a pillar of salt. Not only does she become a pillar of salt, but you could say she becomes a pillar of the Sodomite community. Kind of a monument to sin and evil and disobedience. In fact, somebody called her a monument, the pillar of salt, a monument of disobedience. Now, I believe this backward look was not out of curiosity. Oh, let me, I wonder what's going on back there anyway. He said not to look behind. My curiosity's got the best of me. That's not what's happening. It's not an accident. It's deliberate. She's deliberately looking back. She gazes intently at the city behind her. That's what she does. Now, isn't, but isn't that how the Sodomites lived? In total disobedience to God. They all lived that way. And here, she shows herself to be a true resident of Sodom. Lot's wife is never mentioned again in the entire Old Testament. She uh, resurfaces in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 17. Turn to Luke 17. Luke chapter 17. Let's read verses 22 to 29. Jesus speaking. Luke 17, 22, Jesus said to his disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of those days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look there, look here. Do not go away, do not run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, we talked about that earlier, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. What were they doing in the days of Noah? They were eating and drinking they were marrying. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. What were they doing then? They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting. They were building. But on that day, on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. That's what it says in Luke. I want you to notice what the people, that the people of Sodom were doing, the same basic thing as the people of, of, of Noah's day. They were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. Interestingly enough, it doesn't say anything about marrying when it comes to the days of Lot. Now, we know his, Lot's daughters were pledged to be married to two guys, but it doesn't mention anything about marriage in Lot's day. Just an observation. Now, what is verse 28 telling us? Just as in Noah's day, the people were living their lives, going about their daily routine without the first thought of God. By the way, the activities in verse 27 are not sinful things. These aren't sinful. Building and planting and all. They're going about their daily activities. Not sinful activities. They're ordinary activities of life. But the, fact, the problem was there was no time for the Lord and the ordinary activities of life that they were involved in. The Lord did not figure in their life. And when judgment fell, they were all destroyed. They, had, they seemed to be clueless it was coming. That's a warning for all of us. Be careful about that your life does not all become, become all about you and about your plans and your schemes and your pursuits of life, and you live as if there were no God at all. Well, I've got many things to do this week and next tomorrow and a month from now, and I have plans for the future, 
People say, ask the question in interviews a lot of time, what, 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 what's your life going to be like? What do you want your life to be like five years from now, ten years from now? And a lot of people usually they say, well, you know, they want to be wealthy. <laughs> but what about the Lord five years from now or ten years from now? You know, we, we can't live as if there's no consequences in life. One day there's going to be many people who are going to be surprised and shocked to find themselves facing a holy God in judgment. But back to, let's go on to Lot's wife here. Look at verse 30 of chapter 17. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Oh, that's the future. It, on that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Jesus chooses Genesis 19. Now, what if you're going to choose an illustration, you're the Lord. Where are you going to go in the scriptures? Well, he went to different places, but here he goes to Genesis 19. Don't, do you guys remember Genesis 19? Here's an object lesson. Don't forget about life's, Lot's wife. She's an example. She's an example to us of a person who wants to keep their life, to keep their way of life. They, they don't want to give it up. They enjoy their way of life as it is, their sinful way of life. They don't want to give that up. Lot's wife, apparently content to live without the Lord. I take that from the a, a, a deduction of what Jesus says in these words. Remember his wife. She wanted to keep what she had in Sodom. Think about it. Her husband owned a large herd of flocks or whatever he owned, cattle. He's got that. He's wealthy. They're, they're wealthy. Her husband sat in the city gate as a magistrate of some kind, a city official. Uh, she's, uh, she's, Sodom was a well-to-do city back then, by the way. Uh, she's, life seemed to suit her there. Oh, she would get irritated with her husband. Her husband, rather, would get irritated with the evils of the city. He, would, he didn't like that, but she could, she could live with that. She didn't have any qualms about that. Maybe she thought she could go back and retrieve some of her goods. Maybe that's why she looked back. Maybe I can go get some of the stuff that I have before I leave. This is my life is in Sodom. Everything meant so much to her or there. But Jesus tells the people of that day, remember Lot's wife. Don't go back, in the, when Jesus returns, don't go back into the house to collect any goods. They're not going to do you any good. When Christ returns, it's not going to matter. None of that's going to matter. Leave it all behind. You won't be able to hang on to that anymore. Whoever seeks his life is going to lose it, he says. You know, if your life is just about this life, you are a loser. You're a loser. You're not going to win. You're not going to enjoy God's blessing. You're not going to go to heaven. You're not going to have eternal life. It's better to do what Jesus says in verse 33, lose your life, and other references in the Gospels imply or say, lose your life for Jesus' sake, live for him, don't live for this passing world of sin. So Lot's wife becomes a pillar of salt. She looks back, and you know, this is not a light thing that she looked back. This is not a light look. This is serious, serious enough to bring, to bring about this dreaded fate for her, she shows where her heart truly lies by looking back, and she pays the price for it. Again, the historian Josephus says on his visit that he actually saw this pillar, Lot's wife. Can you believe this? He says, I, I, I have seen it, and it remains to this day. That's what he says in his work, Antiquities, which we can't verify that. We can't verify that. There's some Arabs and over the years that have said the same thing, so I don't, I don't know about that. But the important thing to remember is what Lot's, Lot's wife teaches us. Don't forget that lesson. And Jesus uses it as, to illustrate this truth. He goes back in Genesis 18 and says, I want you to see something here. Remember Lot's wife. 
Peter and Jude, they also use this uh, from Genesis 19 as an illustration. 2 Peter 2.6 in your notes. God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them a what? An example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Sodom is an example of those who would dare to live ungodly lives. What's the message from Sodom? God judges sin and sinners. He does. This is no joke. Jude 7 also points back to Genesis 19. Uh, he speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them indulging in gross immorality, Jude 7 says. I don't think I have that verse on your page. Gross immorality, talking about they going after strange flesh, talking about homosexuality. And then it goes on to say in Jude 7, these cities are exhibited as an example, again, another word again, example, and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Wow. Sodom and Gomorrah are, are an anticipation, a type of what is to come in the future by way of judgment. If you think the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was bad, that is going to be nothing compared to the judgment of everlasting hell, which Sodom and Gomorrah points to. The destruction of Sodom by fire and brimstone points to the judgment of eternal hell. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, in your notes, says, The one who does not know God and, the one, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they're going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Revelation 21.8, the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons, sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake that burns with what? Fire and brimstone. People make fun of that, which is the second death. People make fun of that, that's what the scripture says. So the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is not just a historical reference, you know, buried in ashes. It's pointing to the future. It's an eternal warning to all those who persist in sin, all those who reject God. It's pointing ahead to the future as well. Look at uh, Genesis. Go back to Genesis. Look at verse uh, 27. Now Abraham rose early in the morning. Now we switch to Abraham. He rose early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah. And toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Verse 27 takes us back to chapter 18. Remember Abraham is standing before God, and he's interceding for the city of Sodom, for the righteous people. He goes back to that spot, and from his vantage point, he's able to look down, obviously on an elevated space area, a hill or a mountain. He looks down, and he's able to see the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, as he was earlier in chapter 18. Now, why does he do this? Why does he go to this spot? Well, I think he knows what's coming. <laughs> he knows what's coming, and he wants to see what would become of those cities. What did he pray? Remember in chapter 18, the end, he says, I pray, he prayed that if at least 10 righteous people were found, Please, Lord, don't destroy the city. And the Lord agreed to do that. So were there at least ten righteous? The evidence from below gave him the answer. It says, verse 28, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Nope. Everything has gone up in smoke. And Abraham now sees it. Put yourself in Abraham's spot. You're seeing this. Your nephew's there. It's all gone up in smoke. The comparison of the rising smoke is made to a furnace 
The furnace was a kiln in which, a kiln in which pottery was made. It had to be at extreme heat to make the pottery. And Abraham looks down the valley. It looks like one big furnace to him. Wow, devastation everywhere. Again, another image of judgment. Reminded me, it, it, you, you know, you think of Revelation 9.2 says, mentions the bottomless pit, pit in which smoke ascends like the smoke of a great furnace. All these images of judgment. You have to wonder, what was Abraham thinking? What was he, does he, does he, did he know Lot had escaped? Did he know that as he looked down? All he sees is destruction. What's he thinking? It doesn't say if he knew that. It doesn't say that anywhere. Now, the gospel writer, Moses, knows. He tells us. But I don't know if Abraham, did Abraham just presume him, presume him dead as he looks at the smoke below? You know, a lot of people in, in war back in the day, World War I, World War II, you know, their loved ones uh, maybe would vanish in war. They would disappear. Some, many died, obviously, but if they couldn't find them, they would give them the message, presume dead. Is that what he's thinking here? You got to wonder. Verse 29 may give us a hint. First of all, we're reminded again three times in this verse that it's God who destroyed the cities. Verse 29, once it says he destroyed them. Twice it says he overthrew them, almost as if to keep emphasizing this fact again and again. This is God doing this. He said he's going to do it. He said he's going to judge sin. He said he's going to judge sinners, and he's doing this. And he emphasizes it. So guess what? The same is true in the future. If he says that's going to happen, it's going to happen. There's a bright spot in verse 29. The words God remembered Abraham. That's covenant language. You always see that in relationship to covenant. God had a covenant with Abraham. He's going to bless Abraham. And he's going to be faithful to Abraham. And so God had heard the prayer of Abraham to spare the righteous of Sodom. I think Abraham is banking on this. His mercy, he spared Lot. Abraham counted on God's mercy, but it doesn't say for sure. What if he's left to wonder? But it does show you the importance and necessity of intercessory prayer. It's vital to pray for others. If we don't, who will? It's our responsibility, it's our privilege to pray for people, to bring them before the Lord. For many reasons, they ask you to pray. People ask you to pray all the time for them. They come to us with requests all the time. We need to pray for those people. It's far more important than any of us realize. Abraham prayed for any righteous, especially Lot, in Sodom. Let me just say one more thing about the judgment upon Sodom. Turn to Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 20, it's interesting how the Lord goes back to this illustration. Other writers too. Matthew eleven twenty. 20, then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you, and you, Capernaum, will, you not, will, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles that had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it's going to be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. These are the words of Jesus. Again, going back to Genesis 19 for an illustration the cities he mentions here, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, all around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus did all these miracles in that area, you know, raising uh, sick people, uh, healing people, causing blind people to see, casting out demons, all many wonderful works, and 
Yet in spite of all the obvious goodness of the Lord in, those, in, these, in these cities, there's no repentance. Nobody turned to Christ, or, or very few at least, and so Jesus denounces them. Then he says something very interesting. Did you get that? If the miracles that occurred in Sodom, of all places, he picks out Sodom, which had occurred in you, that city would have remained to this day. I would have not destroyed it. In other words, God would not have destroyed it because they would have repented had they seen the works of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? incredible? Can you imagine the men of Sodom, the, the sinful men of Sodom, falling on their face before God in repentance? Can you imagine that? Jesus said, if I would have been there doing these miracles in Sodom, they would have repented. But the judgment's going to be worse for you guys in your cities because you're not repenting. You know, nobody, none of those cities, Chorazin, Capernaum, Bethsaida, none of those cities are known, as far as we know, for homosexuality. They didn't do any of that stuff. They just rejected Jesus. And yet, they're going to have a worse judgment, a harsher judgment, than Sodom is, he says. Sodom never had the privilege of Jesus preaching to them. They never saw any of his miracles. All they had was Lot, and he did not do a whole lot of good in that city. Now, to our generation, I say, be very careful that you don't take Jesus lightly. Be careful of not taking him seriously, of not being committed to him, because he is what life is all about. If life for you is something other than Jesus, you're going down the wrong road. I'm telling you, life is about him. You have to ask yourself the question, what is my response to Christ? What is my relationship to him? The Lord's mission to Sodom we're talking about involved three objectives. First of all, to investigate they did that. They found the city wanting. They found the city guilty. And secondly, to rescue. And they did that by God's mercy. They rescued Lot, got him out of the city. Thirdly, to destroy. The Lord just demolishes the area. That's where unbridled wickedness leads to, judgment by God. That's what the scripture says. But the story's not over yet. We move on to the last section of Genesis 19, which deals with Lot's legacy. Lot's legacy. Look at Genesis 19. Verse 30, Lot went up from Zoar, and he stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him. For he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in the cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There's not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine. Let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son, called his name Benami, for he is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Now, preachers down through the history don't like to deal with this passage. They don't, in fact, they don't deal with this passage. But when you're doing this business of what we call exposition, you're kind of forced to deal with the passage. <laughs> Can't really jump over it. You know, it's funny, and, and the, the years I heard preaching, all the years I've heard some interesting preaching in my lifetime, by the way. Uh, you know, people, preachers hop and skip over what, what they don't want to preach over. 
They don't want to preach certain passages, so they don't. They don't want to deal with elections, so they don't, right? So we'd rather not talk about this, right? But God put this here for a reason, so we must talk about it. It's, why did he put it here? It's because God is holy, and he wants to point out how devastating sin is. Lot had insisted on not going to the mountains. Remember that? Go back to chapter 19, or go to chapter 19, verse 19, same chapter. When they're escaping the city of, of uh, Sodom, and Lot says to the angels, Behold, your servant has, fa has found favor in your sight. You have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains. I can't go to the mountains, guys. You are guys, right? For the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Disaster, probably the, you know, the destruction of Sodom. I, I, I'm not going to make it out in time. Verse 20, now behold, here's the second. I, I'm going to present you with another alternative. There's a town nearby. Is it not a little one? You know, a lot of translations say it says, it says small in the Nazby. Is it not a little one? Is it not a little one? He keeps saying that. Uh, let me flee there. Let me, my life's going to be saved if I go there. He pleads for the angels not to let him go to the little town of Zoar. I was, talking, I, was, I was looking at that, and I was thinking, maybe someone should write a song, A Little Town of Zoar. You know, I was thinking, the next line, how still we see thee lie, would not apply to Zoar. It would apply to Sodom after the destruction. But now he decides, I don't want to go to live in Zoar. I don't want to live in Zoar after all. I made a mistake. I'm afraid to live there. It says he was afraid to live there. Why? I can only guess that because he thinks, you know, God destroyed those other cities, those other four. There's a, this is a circle, this valley. It's called, the, the word valley is, is also a circle. And you see that a few times in Genesis, and it's like five cities there in a circle. And so he's thinking, you know, this one was slated for judgment too, and he got the other four. This may come, it's still, it still, yet may happen. He still may judge the city. That's, what I, that's just a guess. And so whatever the reason was, he gets out of town and he decides to head for the hills, the mountains. And they do. They climb the mountain. They find a, 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 a shelter up there. They find a cave. Now, this is really bizarre. This is not the urban setting that Lot likes. The city boy becomes a cave dweller. City dweller becomes a cave dweller. Um, but we find out that the cave becomes a place no different than Sodom. The men of Sodom are dead, but there are two women from Sodom, alive and well, and although the city of Sodom is no more, the sins of Sodom have not been destroyed. These two women bring the sins of Sodom with them. You know, you can live in the city, the country, you can live in a cave, you can be homeless, wherever you want to live, you can even escape your present location, but you cannot escape yourself. You're bringing your heart with you wherever you go, it's going with you, your heart's going to, it must be dealt with. The problem was, you could say, well, I'm going to, if I just live over here, some people want to change in, in sports, they want to change teams. If I go to this team, maybe I'll do better than I did on this team. You know, maybe if I move over here, I can do better. Maybe the country will be better for me. But if your heart's not changed, it doesn't really matter where you live. And the hearts of the daughters of Lot, they weren't changed. No change at all. Now, what follows in this story is a plan literally hatched in hell itself. It's kind of a thing that Satan would come up with. The oldest daughter has been doing some thinking while in the cave. I mean, what else are you going to do in a cave? Nothing going on in the cave. She comes up with a scheme. This scheme reflects a sodomite tradition. This is sodomite thinking. First, she lays out the, the problem. She talk, she's talking to her, her older, the older sister is talking to her younger sister. She lays out the problem. Uh, somehow, 
they must preserve their family line. Look at verse 33, verse 32, and verse 34. Both times at the end of verse 32, we may, that we may preserve our family through our father. Verse 34, the end of it, that we may preserve our family through our father. Uh, we've got to preserve our family. We've got to preserve seed from our father. We've got to perpetuate the family line. Uh, this is something we have to do. We have to have children. Whatever the cost, whatever it takes, we've got to have children, she tells her younger sister. So verse 31, the older daughter says, well, we, do, we have a couple of obstacles here. Our father's old, verse 31. He's advancing in years. There's no male heir to take his name, to carry on his name. We don't have a male heir here. No sons. In fact, Lot doesn't even have, your father doesn't even have a wife anymore. She's gone. And to make matters worse, in verse 31, they say, in effect, we don't have husbands. We don't have husbands. We're, we were engaged to those two guys, those cute guys, in Sodom, but they turned out to be duds. <laughs> and uh, not only that, but it, she states in verse 31, there's not a man on the earth. Not a man on the earth. Now, is that true? There were no men on the earth. You know, people say, well, I just don't find any guys to date. Or, well, that may be true in certain settings, but... There's no man on the earth somewhere? That's an exaggeration. Often when people are dis desperate, they exaggerate. I've seen this. They exaggerate. They don't look at the facts. They're all crazy in their head. They ignore facts. It is true that the four cities were wiped out. But the, all the men with them were wiped out. But what about Zoar? They were there for a while. Didn't they see men there? Pretty sure they did. What about Uncle, the, Uncle Abraham, their great Uncle Abraham, 20 miles away or so? There's no men over there? Sure, they had to have known that. The whole world didn't get wiped out. Some people think when, it, when she says this, they thought that a worldwide flood type destruction had happened again. No, no, it's another flood. We've all, the whole world's been destroyed because four cities were. Some people think, they think, everybody's been destroyed on the earth. I don't know what they thought exactly. But I will say this, they're isolated, they're in a cave. She's thinking, she's exaggerating, she believes number one priority got to have children. This takes precedence over everything. So she, re she resolves to commit a great evil to achieve her goal. <clears throat> she and her sister are going to bear children through her father. She never questions this plan. It never occurs to her, this is really an evil plan. She, there's nothing about that at all. This is incest. And again, it's forbidden in scripture. Read Leviticus 18. I've told you that several times in Genesis. Read Leviticus 18. You'll see it there. No incest. So on separate nights, it says, they made their father drink wine, and Lot gets drunk. So intoxicated, he's not even aware of what's going on. He has no clue. According to verses 33 and 35, the end result is that both daughters wind up pregnant. Now, in the first place, Lot did not have to submit to drinking wine in excess. Did he have to do that? They made their father drink wine. They made their father drink wine? Did he have to, did he have to succumb to that? He could have said no to drunkenness. He doesn't do that. Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads, here's a paraphrase, which leads to debauchery. Drinking drunkenness leads to debauchery. There's nothing good that comes out of drunkenness. Never anything good. That's when people get into all kinds of tr trouble. Usually about 2 o'clock in the morning, and you read the story the next day in the paper, so-and-so was drunk, and they got into trouble. It says, don't get drunk with wine, with lead, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, it says. Had Lot been walking with God, this wouldn't have happened. Had he, had, he, had he been acting like the righteous man that he technically was, this would not have happened. 
believers are supposed to be submitted to the Lord's control, not under control of anything else, not wine or anything for that matter. In the second place, the daughters of Lot had been taught by example by their own father. Remember that when the men of Sodom in verse 8 tried to bust the door down? And he says, oh, I got a great idea. How about I offer you my daughters instead? Do with them what you want to. That wasn't lost on the daughters, by the way. It wasn't lost on them. Lot was willing to give his daughters to the men of Sodom without their permission. So now they're going to commit immorality with him without his permission. And that's what happens. Lot was never going to be father of the year. He never was. He set a horrible example for his daughters to follow. Men, we have, men, you as fathers have a great responsibility to bear as the leader of the home, to, to lead your home, to follow the Lord in his way. This is not optional. And don't relegate this to your wife. Well, my wife's the religious. I've heard people, men say, my wife's the religious one in our family. Well, you better be the spiritual one in your family, whatever she is or isn't. That's your job first and foremost. And to siblings, if there are any in the room, I would say be careful about giving your younger brothers and sisters bad advice. Don't do that. Be careful that you don't lead them astray. You know what? Your younger brothers and sisters hear what they hear what you say. They see what you do. And you can lead them to God or you can lead them to sin and to Satan. Either way, you cannot be afford to be selfish. You cannot afford to be selfish and do whatever you want. You can't do that. You have to think about the effect you're having on your younger brothers and sisters. What's the end of the story? Verse 37. The firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. You know what Moab means? It means from father. Yikes. Verse 38. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the sons of Ammon. Ben-Ami means son of my kin, son of my kinsman, son of a relative. The two names would be a constant reminder of the, the, the two wicked nights spent in the cave forevermore. Those two names would reflect the sin that happened in the cave. Tragic reminders. The two peoples that are mentioned here, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they would be a thorn in Israel's side for the rest of the Old Testament. There would be their enemies. A, this is such a disaster that has happened. Sin just continues on. The effects of sin continue on, by the way. They don't stop the next day necessarily. They continue on maybe for years to come. What a disaster this is. What a nightmare. There is good news in all this somehow. You know, somehow God brings good things out of bad. I don't know how he does that. But he does because we find a woman in the Old Testament by the name of Ruth. She's in a book by the same name, the book of Ruth. Ruth is from Moab. She was a Moabite. A Moabite. And she doesn't follow a Moabite gods. Instead, she becomes a follower of the Lord. In Ruth 1.16, she says to her mother-in-law, your people should be my people. Your God shall be my God. I'm following the Lord God. And you find her son, Obed, where? In the genealogy of Christ. In Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3 as well. That's amazing grace. I think that's what we call it, right? Amazing grace. What about Lot? Well, his worldly choices led to his downfall. And the downfall of his family. How do we explain Lot? People say, you know, I've been wondering about this the whole time in Genesis tonight. How in the world do we explain Lot? I don't think I totally know how we explain the man, except to say what the scripture says about him. First of all, he was a righteous man. Yes, he was, Peter tells us. And, you know, he had the influence of Abraham. But he was also a conflicted man, a compromised man, a double-minded man, 
a man who often set his affections on things above, not on things on, on, on heaven. There's only one, belie- one way for believers to walk, and that's Colossians 3.2. Set your mind, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind and your affections on things above. That's the only way for us to live. Sadly, Lot didn't do that. And so he fails as a father and probably a husband and probably in many ways he fails. He didn't set his affections on things above. And so this is his legacy. And nobody wants, should want this legacy. There's only one legacy we want to leave behind. That is, we want to be a testimony for Christ. That's the legacy you want to leave behind. Testimony of Christ, for Christ to your family first, to your church to the world at large, our motto should be always be, for to me, to live is Christ. Who are you living for tonight, yourself or Christ? Let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful for your word, grateful for uh, the instruction, the warning it gives us, Lord. Help us to take heed to these warnings, take them seriously, knowing that life after life has been destroyed in this world because they didn't take your warning seriously. Help us to commit ourselves to you completely and wholly and be wholly yours, Father. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.